Uh oh. How about now? Oh yeah, I can hear you now. <laughs> How's that? Oops. I've just I've just pulled down my my boom. Oh and no. I'm, yeah, well we'll 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 get it fixed here. I'm in a I'm in a new location. An undisclosed location? Undisclosed location. Oh my the boom arm slipped up underneath the this makes for real. This makes for good radio here. All that, all that awesome clunking. I was I was trying to practice really good microphone technique. Uh huh. And- and it, it turns out I, I, I practice really bad microphone technique at, at the exact same time. Um, so I think I'm like, do I sound super, super echoey? You sound echoey, yes. Yeah. So what I'm going to try and do for this one is um, use the, the studio filter thing on um, whatever. Descript. Descript. Yeah. yeah. So we'll try. We'll, we'll see. See what we can do. I'm. So this is, you know, a whole, there's a whole thing going on here. Well, that actually might be better. Is that less echoey now? Yeah. Oh, I'm now talking into the top of my microphone Hmm. and it's good. It's good microphone technique right now. Okay. So we'll try, we'll try this. Yeah. And Um, I mean, and I can always run it through uh, Descript. Um, I feel like I should learn. I feel like. Yeah, uh, but it's, yeah. yeah, but it's. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. It takes time. It's stressful. I yeah. find it stressful. I find that the whole it's a wonderful app that is completely does not work the way my brain wants it to work. So, <laughs> um, yeah, does it? It does give a transcript too, right? Like it's right. Oh, absolutely, gives yeah. a transcript. It does that flawlessly. I mean, well, it's not flawless. Yeah, it's, it's easier than typing it. See, that's really nice. Yeah, but that that's nice for our um, our listeners who might want want a transcript. Which I could put. Well, I, yeah, you, we could. We could. We'll have to use Richard Fingers um, because it's. Uh, it is not at all perfect, but it is. It is very good. So this is again a little bit of inside uh, podcast uh, baseball here. It is what I use for editing our other podcast, uh, yes. Risky or Not, and uh, it is quite good. The transcript is quite good at finding. Uh, locations in the transcript where someone might say this has been another episode um, <laughs> or welcome to risky or not uh, you know and things like that it doesn't it doesn't always get it but it, I would say nine times out of ten it does and, and if not uh, I can change the words and, and find it and it makes it real easy to cut that show up into uh, bite-sized bits oh well that's that's good but w- which is not what we do with this uh, with this podcast no, at all. With this show, it's in the show. It's in the show. Minimal, minimal, minimally, minimally processed, as they as they say in the world of uh, fresh produce. Uh, that <laughs> we're, is that what yeah. they say? Well, it's, I think that's a thing. That's like uh, like cut um, like cut melons. They are minimally processed, just like this podcast. It is minimally <laughs> processed. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm coming to you from a, a new a new location, new new office that has it's echoey because Wait, you got another office? No, this is the a same third office. office? <laughs> this is it's my second it's my it's only my second my second new office. Um but it it is the first time that we've actually done a podcast from mm. this new office. Yes, yes. Uh and there's no currently there's no artwork on the walls. There's there's a 
there's a wall. It, it is, I'm, I'm describing the room to you right now, Don. There, there are two doors. Mm -hmm. One door goes to, to the outside um, uh, uh, hallway. There, there is a door behind me that goes to a closet, a storage closet, which is really just for storing all the internet network that powers my building, I think. There, huh. there's, yeah, there's a, there's a fancy, I'll send you a picture later. There's a, a fancy looking piece of equipment that's got a lot of a lot of green lights and red lights on it, a lot of a lot of switches, maybe. Not not like ins and outs. Yeah. Not like actual switches that I could actually manipulate. Switch, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's what it's called. I think it's a uh, it's a switcher. Yeah. There's, I think I think you should go in there and just like start like <laughs> changing stuff around at random. Like a like a telephone operator from the yeah, 1920s yeah, or yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. Let me, yeah, welcome to the Grover Exchange. Let me uh, get you to uh, Mrs. McGillicuddy. And and, I, <laughs> and then I'll, then I'll, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, uh, it's new. There's, there's no artwork. There's no, so, so it's echoey because it's, it's large, it's yeah. large and largely empty. There's, I've got. Yeah, you should, you should get some uh, baffles, some I, uh, sound I, baffles. I need some sound. I'm, I might get and the, the life hack or the podcasting hack that, that we learned from the Dubai Friday holiday party, uh, from, from Casey. I might get some uh, coffee bags, uh, that are um, burlap, burlap coffee bags that are that wrap the sound baffling that actually help with the echo. I'm, that's, and by Casey, I'm pretty sure you mean Marco. Marco, not even Casey. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> By the other, the other Casey, Mark, who's named Marco. Uh, who's Casey? Uh, who the hell is uh, Casey? That's what I want to know. Who the yeah. hell is Casey? Um, oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. Marco is the one that likes coffee. Uh, Marco is the one that has a Tesla. Um, uh, Marco is the one that is very into different kinds of microphones and their quality. The microphone that I'm currently using, that I think you're currently using too, came from uh, Marco's website on reviews on microphones. Yes. Yeah. So, so if you have any complaints about the audio, please email Marco. Yeah. And it's certainly not <laughs> about the way that I've handled sound baffling in this, in this room. Uh, so, yeah. So we, so we've got, I, I've got that it's, uh, I'm at a different. Um, so where I have podcasted from, well, really for the entirety of our podcasts, other than the times that we're on the road, is all always in my old office here on campus or my home office. I look out a window while I talk to you, like, mm. like, like there's, I have, you know, there, there are things on my screen, but then I look above and I see a tree and I see um, in, in my, my old on-campus office, I would see these compost piles. Um, now I, I can, I have to turn my head to the side to look at a window and look at some construction. But most of today is going to be, not looking at a window, I'm going to be looking at my screen. And it is a somewhat different experience. Like I, huh. yeah, I, I'm looking and I, I like in the what, six or eight minutes that we've been recording here, I look around. Um, I, like I'm looking at a, at a wall a lot. I'm looking at little um, specks of, of like paint flex. Uh, Cause I, I don't know. I like, I'm, that, that's what I'm used to. I, I'm very used to not 
looking at my screen and reading things, but looking above and around. And and now I'm, I, it's going to be, it's going to be weird. It's going to take me a little bit of time to do that. Well, and the other thing that is very weird because I just was looking for the little thing that tells us how long uh -huh. we've been recording. Um, and it does not exist because no. the other that thing that's new about today that you and I know, uh, we knew from, from time zero, but the listeners are only about to learn is that we are trying an experiment uh, uh, where we're going to record this podcast in Zoom. Right, right. Because I'm, I'm recording this also from a fancy new M1 Mac. And uh, I've got my, my old Intel Mac as, as backup if this didn't go well, which we truthfully will not know, <laughs> <You'll> know. <laughs> until, until the end. But I, I see in the Zoom window, it says recording. The, there, there is a uh, red recording circle that, that appears to be um, uh, pulsating uh, that would indicate that it's recording. Uh, and yeah, so we're gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna try this out. This is what the people are doing these days or well, some of the people. Yeah, and I, and I knew we were recording because as I joined the call second uh, after you had already started the recording. And again, for those of you who are familiar with Zoom, you'll know this, but if you are, uh, if somebody turns on the recording or if you join a call where it is being recorded, the first thing you are presented with is a very, a window that looks very alarming. It says, this call is being recorded. Um, okay or leave <laughs> right and sometimes i've been a little startled by that and i've clicked leave um accidentally <laughs> much like you i click the hang up button when you call me on skype uh just because you know sometimes yeah i feel like i have to you know you're presented with something like that and you feel like you need to act quickly and sometimes you act quickly and wrong so right 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 well you know we have um here in, in north carolina we have a uh a law that if I record something, the other person has to be notified. It's it's two you know two two person two party consent, I believe it's called. Um, and and I think it, so somewhere I read that those yeah yeah here it is okay so you know I I could customize the recording consent disclaimer to be legally um, in step with what I need to do in my state. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, There's, I, I did I not just, know that. Yeah, I just found I just found that this you can you can do this. You can sign in to account settings or group management. Maybe I can't do it, but maybe the maybe because I'm on a NC State University account, they have mm. done that. That's why the notification pops up, and it doesn't always pop pop up. Um, it it all depends who's doing the recording. Have you hmm. noticed that? No, I've yeah. not. I've oh, I always thought we were getting notified, but I that could be. Oh, that's interesting. I did not realize that. Yeah, and I I think <laughs> that I'll, I'll send you this this link here. Um, uh, the I think that that you know not not me or you, but the the IT um, the IT folks uh, want to make sure that no one's going to get in trouble, so they they customize this stuff. The the IT crowd is that what we call them? Oh, I think that's a show. Ah, literally. That's, uh, <laughs> So, all right. So, the IT crowd. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about British uh, <laughs> television. Um, what, what did you have? You watched the IT crowd? I believe we have watched every episode at least once. Yes. See, I'm not. I couldn't get into it. I watched. Really? The, yeah, I watched huh. the first couple episodes. There are very many um, uh, British comedians on that show who I who I whom I like who who I like. Mm -hmm. um, but the I I didn't. I, I think I have a problem with laugh tracks now. Okay. And, the, and there is a laugh track in, at least in the first season is, of that. Is there? I yeah. Oh, okay. Hmm. And that, that kind of threw me off. 
in, in the way like i think it's is it a three camera uh setup is that what they call it in the in, in the tv industry that's a three camera shoot you're, you're yeah yeah I, I honestly i don't know three camera something it, it's okay. a um it, it, uh, the standard sitcom filming tip this is from tvtropes.org, which is uh, where I go for all my information about the internet and television. The standard sitcom filming technique popularized, popularized, popular. Oh, this is the part of the podcast where I mispronounce things uh, by I Love Lucy and Desi Lu Studios and used extensively in other settings, especially news and talk shows. On the whole, it doesn't look a lot like a stereotypical movie, movie production. So uh, the show is, is shot with three simultaneous cameras often before live, live audience. And I think that's what's happening in the IT crowd and I'm not a fan. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, 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 well, and here's, it greatly reduces the number of times a scene needs to be reshot for technical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause you can cut to different, different angles. Um, so anyway, I'm, I, well, I have been also consuming a, a CNN documentary called the history of the sitcom uh in alongside of uh other things that i'm that i'm watching including the chair which we need to talk about here uh mm. in a minute um and and it's there the 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 sitcom itself i find the old sitcom style which i think is this standard three camera shoot um not what i want to watch anymore like i'm a huh. office parks and rec Mm-hmm. 30 rock kind of kind of viewer where it's a, a mockumentary kind of feel um and, and it i guess it's probably three cameras but it doesn't feel like three cameras or something uh and but but no laugh track and that's what i'm that that's what i'm about with the at least with the comedy shows that i'm that i'm watching hmm. so speaking of speaking of sitcoms um and this is the television portion of the yeah. show have you have we i don't know if we've talked about this or if i've mentioned it have you watched the history of the sitcom we are watching I, this right now and it's quite good so funny you should say that um and i it's i just mentioned that i'm watching the history of the sitcom oh did you did you I, I, you know this is the part of the show where i pay attention and don't look out my window <laughs> yeah see that's but that's what got me thinking about what i like watching is those those old shows yeah we've been watching it as well uh i think it's great uh well and i shouldn't say we've been watching i've been watching it in bed before Mm. we like as a um you know it's it's easily consumed Mm -hmm. uh as i as i nod off to sleep but yeah i've been it's been fascinating have you watched any of the other history of uh documentary series that cnn's put on um i don't know i I did not know it was a a whole thing history of things yeah Yeah. they just did a history of late night they um Hmm. which was really fascinating they did uh, a couple of seasons on the history of comedy Oh, i think we might have watched some of the history of comedy yes um yeah and there was another one that that was and then they they've done like the decades right so it's like the 80s and the 90s oh and we've definitely watched those decade shows yes yeah i there's something very comforting about the these um these series these history of series mm-hmm. i really like them they're mm-hmm. they're done in a in a really really great way they've got um interviews with people where it's new, i don't know new information that i hadn't heard before um so yeah yeah we just or i watch i so danny was i think asleep for this but we just watched the um episode on uh working for laughs 
where um, they talked about the Mary Tyler Moore show and designing women and Murphy Brown and Larry Sanders, all sort of workplace um, shows. And I really enjoyed that one. Um, and then there was a really good episode on um, race as well that I just that I just watched over the weekend. So yeah, yeah, I've been I've been I've been consuming. It's good. Cool. Um, so the other thing that I started is the chair, and you yes. texted me about yes. this. Have you? Have, did, have you We're you, caught up. We're one hundred percent caught up. We've been watching every episode. So um, I'm only two episodes in. Okay, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. Don't don't tell me how it ends. Um, so and and just to be clear, we are not talking about the song "The Chair" written by Hank Cochran and Dean Dillon. No, no, <laughs> and recorded by uh, American country music artist George Strait. That's not what we're talking about. No, we're also not talking about <laughs> Fleetwood Mac's "The Chain," uh, which is uh, if you um, mistype "The Chair," you might get to that. Uh, as well. So no, we're, we're not talking about either of those. We're talking about a Netflix series si starring Sandra Oh and Jade Duplass um, called The Chair. And it is, uh, here, this is directly from the Netflix website. At a major university, the first woman of color to become chair tries to meet the dizzying, de dizzying demands and high expectations of a failing English department. Um, it's been it, the the first two two episodes have been been really really interesting. What what is so being that we're both academics? Mm -hmm. um, what's your you know what, what's your have you enjoyed it? Oh you, oh absolutely hundred yeah. percent. I've enjoyed it. Um, I <clears throat> I think and we're both academics in departments that are not English. In case you in case anybody <laughs> didn't know that, um, and so I. I, I, and I, so I, so here's the thing, like sometimes there's a, there's a, a, a name for this. And we've talked about it before where you go to watch a show and actually Merlin has talked about this a bunch recently, where you go to watch a show about something where an area where you are an expert and you know that they just got it completely wrong. Right. And so this is the academic part of this feels accurate. I don't know if the English department part of it is actually accurate. I mean, there's a little yeah. bit, there's a little bit of weirdness. Like there's somebody that's coming up for tenure and it doesn't quite ring true the way that it's being done. But at the same time, every department is different and different universities are different. And so it might not be incorrect, right? How the whole tenure thing is being handled. I mean, I, ideally when you go up for tenure, uh, letters are solicited. There's a very prescribed format. Um, the letters are handled in a very specific way. And it seems like in this particular case, the per like somebody within the, the person's department is, is writing something up um, yeah. for their tenure packet, which is which is not the way that it's done. Although there, there might within a department, there might be a committee. But again, in my experience, typically the way that committee works is you, you solicit external letters and then the committee looks at those letters and then writes an overall summary of the candidate. But you would never, you would never place that candidate in the hands of a single person, right? You would, you would always have a committee uh, to share the blame or and or to prevent one person from torpedoing another person's career, right? And you certainly would, if, if people had a conflict of interest, you certainly wouldn't put the person with the conflict of interest in charge. And, and again, the department chair would have the authority to kind of run all of that, 
So it's a little, you know, so there are parts of it that are, don't quite add up, but I mean, I love, I love the whole, you know, the university politics and, you know, the battles are so fierce because the stakes are so small. And at some point somebody gets sent to uh, their new office, which yeah. is basically a broom closet in a basement. And, and there's a whole side plot then that develops with that character that I won't spoil for you. That's, that's absolutely delightful. And it's, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to like about it. Yeah, we we enjoy we've really enjoyed the first two episodes, and um, I've been watching with Danny, and I wasn't sure. Yeah, pro- so as as I mentioned in in the previous episode of this show, I've you know recently taken on this new administrative role, which is not chair but but head um, here in my department. And so this as the the rise of the popularity of the this show has hit the the internet, I, I've been pinged by like eight people in both in academia here at mm-hmm. NC State outside but also friends outside of the world of academia who have also seen this like is this like what your job is now uh, so so let me yeah. ask you let me ask you a question before yes. before we get into that so um so people talk about department chairs and department heads and the only yeah. people that really seem to care that there's a difference are people that are department heads or who have department heads. And they are very, very committed to the difference between that. And so could you, Ben, for the listeners, um, explain to the best of your ability what the difference is? And then also explain, do you within your university have chairs and heads or is it is it a university specific thing? Yeah, so so and and I will only be able to speak to my as as you said to mm-hmm. the best of my ability and for my perspective. I believe the difference, Don, is that a chair. Um, we we don't have chairs here at NC State. We have we have heads. I was um, say, it must be really hard to have meetings. To yeah, well, stand around. No, but it's good for your uh, you know it's good for body stuff. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, we we don't have department chairs. The chairs, I, I from what I understand, they are. Um, elected, um, voted on positions, not not appointed positions. So, and they are for a term. So we have a we have a friend of the show um, who just finished uh, a term as as department chair, um, and in those terms can be a varying length. They might be mm-hmm. three years or five years, or really as long as the chair wants to keep that. But then the decision goes back to the department to make to elect another chair who will represent them in the college or in the in the university system where in in our case here as a department head that's not i i'm not in an, an elected position um i i'm in a administrative position that's a that's a totally really different role uh from uh, i'm actually no longer part of the departmental voting faculty um, and I, yeah, and I'm no longer really technically part of the faculty um, at at NC State, and it's it's a, a, as far okay. as I understand, it's not a it's a little bit of a gray area because I still have like I still do extension work, right? We're mm-hmm. doing this podcast, mm-hmm. um, but my role is now uh, I you know I no longer pr- submit a faculty activity report on an annual basis because I'm I'm now an administrator of the program. Um, or of, I mean, of my department, but and, of the and college. You, but and and but and you serve at the pleasure of the dean. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. so I let so what the way it works, and so I think you've mostly got at least how it works here, right? In that we do have elections for the chair, but 
the dean could still appoint somebody if if uh, if they wanted, right? But it, I mean, it's in the best interest of the dean to have a chair that has the support of the department. Uh, and there are definitely terms, and people can fill, you know, uh, complete their term, or they can, you know, they can drop in the middle of their term if they if they have another responsibility, or they just, you know, they, they just they leave for another job or something like that, right? And so the uh, the chair is appointed by the dean, but but advised by a faculty vote and and yeah and and it is they are they are administratively handled differently like so for promotion and tenure they would get a vote um but then for promotions um they their 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 merit or their merit pay but not promotion but their merit pay would be handled by the dean and so we would have a committee to decide on merit pay increases within the department and then the chair would decide on merit pay for the people who serve on that committee and then the dean would decide on the merit pay for the chair so it is right. it is yeah. in the hierarchy and so there are so it sounds like like so many things there are similarities and there are differences yeah and and i for me i think the biggest difference is like i, I certainly could return to the faculty like my position oh, right. exists. You, yeah. So it's yeah. not like you don't have tenure anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. Like, like if I, if I decided at, at some point, I, I, you know, I, I would like to return to my food safety program full time. There, there is an ability to do that. Um, the, the, my, my experience with the, the chair aspect is the expectation is that an individual is going to return to the faculty. Whereas a department had, in at least the culture here um, at NC State is is not not really the case. It's it is it is more it is much more rare that someone returns to the department than it is that they continue on in the department head position in perpetuity or um, until they they move to another administrative position or until they move to a, a different institution as an administrator. Um, oh weird. Well. Yeah. But now so, what happened to your what happened to your your old head? Uh, my my old head retired. So, oh, okay. so yep. So she she did the she did the job uh for almost eight years mm -hmm. and um and, and decided uh uh at, you know at some point in the last year that 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 it was it was time for her to um to to not only um you know step down from the department head position but also retire. Now she so isn't is that your plan in eight I, years going to retire? Oh man. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the dream. It's the American dream, Don. Uh, well, and, and so for, for her, for, for just let's note for the records, for the record that, that Ben is uh, far too young to retire in only eight years. I mean, I mean, it'd be great if he could, he'd leave, leave more time for hockey and podcasting, but right. 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 But, but I, I would, I might not have very much built up. My, my retirement might be very frugal. Uh, my experience. Um, so, but for, you know, uh, Carolyn, my, my former department head, uh, and, and I'm now, you know, as I said before, sitting in her, her old office, she moved. Are you in sitting in her old chair? No, ah, <laughs> I no, I brought my own, I, I brought my own chair to the party. Uh, um, but she, um, she is now in phased retirement. So she's returned to the faculty. Um, ah, okay. yeah, but. Um, in a in a reduced capacity, and really, her her um, what what she's doing is, is working on her you know specifically her programs to finish out the things that she'd started and was working on. So yeah, so but that's the that's kind of the norm. Like, and I, I think that there there certainly have been a, a, a couple of department heads in our college who have been department heads for um, you know 10, 12, 15 years. 
Um, mm. and, and they, you know, they, they can, they continue to, um, to, to be in that, in that position and, and talking with, um, with a couple of them, they, they have morphed their, what they do, uh, as a department head and how they've structured things over time in response to the changing landscape of academia. So, so the department head position, her role 15 years ago is different than it is today. And they've, you know, uh, at least two of them have been through that. Um, that, that shift. So, yeah, but, but I, I, you know, uh, just bringing it back to the, the uh, wonderful, delightful Netflix show, the chair. Um, it's, <laughs> Sorry, I took you off your game. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, it's good because it, it like, that was part of the conversation that, that I have with Danny on this as we were watching it, because in, in that case, I mean, it's right in the title. It is that chair model of someone has recently been elected to, um, you know, Sandra, Sandra O, oh, the the actress, um, has has been recently uh, been elected to be the chair and represent that faculty, um, that that English department, and is now um, struggling with some of the ins and outs of personnel and budgets uh, and and scandals. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's. I mean, it's it's it's. If if this at all sounds interesting to you, I encourage you to check. Well, first of all, Sandra O oh is amazing. Oh yeah. Um, the uh, the who's the who's the woman? Um, uh, Joan Hambling uh, is is played by Holland Taylor, who you I I know from Two and a Half Men. She was the mom on Two and a Half Men, and and this is a very different role, and oh. she is quite brilliant in it. And so again, I maybe you haven't met her yet. I don't know, but anyway. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know, I don't know who Holland, like, I don't think I've, I've seen. I don't recognize Holland. that name, but you will yeah. totally recognize her face yeah, yeah. Her vo and her voice is so, so distinct. It's a very, like I said, very different character than the very shrill mother that she played on Two and a Half Men. But and, uh, yeah, she was also on Bosom Buddies. The sure <laughs> the the 1980s sitcom of with, that started Tom Hanks's career with Peter, Peter Scolari. Um which I just remember watching. It was a. It was on for two years. This I'm sure this show would not. It would be very different now. Um, uh, the show features the misadventures of two single men working in creative advertising, struggling in their industry while disguising themselves as women in order to live in the one apartment they could afford. Gender stereotypes and male female interpersonal relationships were frequent themes. Um, I just yeah, I, probably the best you could do in the 1980s, but. I'm not, I'm not sure like, we would definitely not fly today. <laughs> no, it's like just a, a ridiculous, ridiculous, um, uh, you know, focus of a show. Anyway, I do, I do remember that that was like Tom Hanks's first, uh, first thing. Um, so oh, spe speaking of Peter Scolari and the uh, history of the sitcom, he is a, comes up several times because he's been on several uh, hit comedy. Uh, yeah. Um, I most recently loved him in Girls. Um, did you watch Girls? It's, no, no okay. I have not. So it, and, and I'll, you know. No, no I, I mostly know him from uh, the second Newhart. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, that that's where I, I knew him first. Um, Girls is, is a show that I, I really, really liked. I think that, um, that Kristen would not like it. Mm. Uh, um, so, um, but, but I, and Danny was not as much of a fan as I was. I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, but, uh, but anyway, he was, uh, um, he, he, he played a, a, a dad in, in girls of, uh, uh, Lena Dunham's character. Um, and I can't remember what her name is. Uh, anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, so we've been, we've been watching the chair. Um, we we're Don, we're, we're right at the start of, um, the, 
the wave of, of uh, youth hockey season. Um, uh-huh. mm-hmm. So, so now, now weekends and weeknights um, are um, dedicated to ushering children uh, my children specifically to and from the arena, uh, get, you know, getting on the ice with them in many occasions. And then, um, uh, being on a bench, uh, with a mask and yelling, uh, through that mask. Uh, so, uh, other youth hockey players on the ice can hear me. And as I, uh, bark instructions, which are heated 18 to 25% of the time. Um, so yeah, so we we go, uh, we we start. Uh, both of my my kids have training camp that starts this weekend, so they'll be collectively on the ice. Oh, I think it's like twelve or fourteen hours this weekend. Um, so wow. yeah, but it's a fun. I I I I really I I, I relish this time with them. Like I, I think often about how this is a, a time in in their lives that I I get to spend a lot of time with them in the car driving places, shouting at them, shouting at them, but being like, you know, I, I, I get to be, um, they, they both really enjoy the, the, the hockey, um, experience because it's, it's their closest friends and I get to see them mm-hmm. interacting with their friends and, and it's, you know, it, it's great. So, um, yeah. So, so anyway, that's the, the, the switch of, of family changes now from, from September until really March where mm-hmm. we, this is what we do now. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this, all of this, uh, you balance all of this with the department head. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, am I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm Don, I'm getting better at, uh, at my email. I'm, uh, I'm not letting things slip to the second page as quick as I used to. And, uh, (laughs) so, so that's good. Um, yeah. Um, so there's, we have a few things in the, um, in the folder yeah. that I want to yeah, yeah. talk about, but I, I want to, I got to, I want to talk to you about something pertinent. Well, current that's happening right now in Tennessee and Western North Carolina. And I want to get your feedback on a document that I just put in to um, the, the Dropbox. Oh, Hey, someone asked me who listens to the show, who I uh, will, I will re- rename nameless. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Renee, Renee nameless. Is Ren, that, is Ren, that... Ren, yeah. Renee nameless. That's, that's, that's her, that's her name. Um, so someone asked whether we could share the Dropbox so people could see, like, you know, we do show notes, but the documents are there and I don't know, we, we let's talk about it offline. Yeah. Um, I don't think like, I think we it's could, difficult. We, we like, could give people, we could give people read only access, but the problem is like sometimes there's like we put messages in there where people right. say um, you can read my message, but not my name. And oh, then yeah. this would be their name. So I, I would say, yeah, unfortunately, the an- the answer is is we we can talk about it on the show because what's in the show is, is in, in the, the show. show. Um, I, I, it, I mean, we could do it, but it would be more work for us. And, and, and one of the things one of the reasons why I think this podcast and our other podcasts are so successful is that we have figured out ways to do them that are not that much work. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm hesitant. I'm all in favor of ways to do the podcast that that lead to less work for us. I'm very reluctant to take on things that would be more work for us. And and I think um, that would be one that would be more work. I mean, doing it in Descript and publishing a, a, a not a great transcript, 
that's not that much work. That's just export a text file and, and put it on a website, right? Like, so that's something I would be willing to do. I'm not willing to sit and do line edits on the transcript to make it correct, right? Right, right. right. So just yeah. as an example, right? No, that's a good that's a good point. And I hadn't thought about the privacy aspect of, of yeah. what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. yeah, so we'd have to redact stuff, or we'd have to take yeah. stuff out. And so again, anything that that seems like a lot of extra work. And again, I, I feel I so I I think it's a great suggestion. I really appreciate. You know, I mean, I would love, you know, to to get access to the, you know, the do by Friday doc to see all the challenges that they're not going to do. Right. I mean, I would love that, but that's that's probably that's probably not going to happen. No, I that's mean, not, yeah. 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 All right. Well, all right. So, so this is in the Dropbox and we will link to it okay. in the show notes. Yes. Um, so one of the things that's happening right now in uh, Western North Carolina and Tennessee, uh, really as a, I think a, a result of uh, Hurricane Henri uh, is uh, there's a lot of flooding that, that's happened. And so there's been some really devastating um, pictures that, that uh, people have, have shared in, in the media and on social media. But what, what came up in, in this, it builds a little bit on uh, something that we talked about in a risky or not episode um, recently uh, around flooded, uh, flooded region wine bottles, mm-hmm. um, but it's flooded region produce and food safety. And, and so I don't want to, this isn't a risky or not episode, but I want to get your mm-hmm. thoughts because that's it's a different that's a different, different show. show it's a different yeah. show this yeah. is where we get to we 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 try our best to do there on this show uh, <laughs> so so um there is uh a document from um the yep. friend, friends of ours mm-hmm. um barbara Ing- uh, ingham and steve ingham from uh you know form i think steve's no longer at university right. of wisconsin uh but but they wrote a an extension document from back in 2016, or that's when this was published, on safely using produce from flooded gardens. And there is, um, let me find the, um, in the second paragraph, Don, I'll, I want to point you to, mm-hmm. um, to, to this. And I'm going to read it verbatim, uh, and, but I, wanna, I want to get your feedback on this. Um, underground be- vegetables, such as beets, carrots, and potatoes, that are still early in their growth, at least four to eight weeks from harvest, should be safe if allowed to grow to maturity. That's not the part I want you to comment on. But that that sets the context. Root crops, i.e. new potatoes that will be consumed within a month after flooding, should be washed, rinsed, and this is the part I want you to, um, to, to comment on, sanitized, as directed above before cooking thoroughly. And so if you go, if we go to the above, Mm -hmm. Um, they say washing produce with clear water, followed by a brief soak in a dilute bleach solution, and then rinsing before eating or peeling will help reduce any remaining risk. And this is somewhat new to me. So, so the reason why I'm asking you Mm -hmm. this is we used, we, um, you know, uh, the safe plates program here at NC state, we do a lot of social media stuff. Um, we, we came across this, this document a, a few years ago as we were building our social media plans around floods and disaster. And, and we, we've used this term of cleaning and sanitizing produce and, and I, I you know, protecting all the innocent individuals. I, I got a call yesterday from, from someone who, who you and I both know who works for, a state government entity who said, I've got a little bit of heartburn about 
using, we would not, and this is someone who works for. Um, oh, Renee state, Nameless. Renee Nameless. <laughs> Renee Nameless called, exactly, called and said, um, I, we, we would never use the terms clean and sanitized produce in a commercial food setting. And, and this is someone right. who regulates commercial yep, food. Yep, yep. So, so, so what, you know, help me understand in a re- really great way. Like that's the way that I would yep. phrase this yep. as now as an administrator, help me understand why you're using that term and wh- what makes you comfortable with it. And, and so, so I was, I was like, you know, it's, it's, it is out there. Um, and, and if you find, you know, there, there's a few places that this exists, um, it, it does, and I, I, I will, I'll try and find this link um, for show notes, but what, what we have in our notes is that USDA has this information or had this information on their disaster recovery uh, documents. So, so it's, it's something that's out there from a consumer standpoint, but, but what are your, what are your thoughts about sanitizing produce in this way, like, like, you know, so anyway, what do you, what do you, what are you thinking about that when I, when I, when I share that? Yeah. So this is, this is going to be, cause this is the show where we get to dither. Yes. <clears throat> so I've got a bunch of different thoughts. Um, the one thought is that I have for years thought about making a fact sheet that really is not a fact sheet so much as it is an online calculator because I have always been baffled by, and I've gotten less baffled over time. I've always been baffled by sanitizing versus disinfection. There's, you can find lots of recommendations for bleach. Um, The recipes often talk about tablespoons to gallons or teaspoons to quarts or whatever, right? And all, all of this is, is, you know, these are ways that you want to make up these bleach solutions, but then it also depends upon what it is that you're diluting, right? And I know household bleach is a certain concentration, but but other kinds of bleach, uh, commercial bleach might be a higher concentration. So ultimately, it's about the PPM parts per million in what it is that you're diluting, and then it's how much dilution is it going through. So, so first of all, there's this whole issue of how do you give people good advice about how to make different, and then, and then, and then there's different recommendations for different levels of dilution for different applications, right? right? right. Are you, are you sanitizing or disinfecting? Uh, again, are you talking about the outside of metal cans? Are you talking about dishes? Are you talking about dealing with a flood versus just what to do under normal conditions, right? Um, and then the other thing is, I remember back, and this was a while back, there was, I think it was the first, the first salmonella outbreak linked to melons. And so we'd have to go back pretty far. This was back, I'm pretty sure before you were a graduate student, right? So this goes back pretty far, um, where the original recommendation was to wash the outside of the cantaloupes with a dilute bleach solution. And I did, I did a quick search and I did, and again, I found a number of websites saying, don't do this. I did find one which we will link to, which we are not endorsing, uh, which is from the Water Quality and Health Council, uh, which is, I'm trying to figure out what their 
what they're what they're who they are. But anyway, this is an article uh, from 2012 entitled "Cantaloupe Contamination: What Consumers Can Do to Help Reduce Their Risk of Foodborne Illness." That does recommend the dilute bleach solution, but again, only on the outside of the cantaloupe, not on the fruit, which is which is good. And that was the original recommendation back when this first cantaloupe outbreak came came out. Um, but people have backed that off because, again, I guess the idea is we don't want for whatever reason, we don't want people to use bleach on any kind of fresh produce. For, and there could be there could be legitimate reasons for this. There could be, you know, risk averse, risk manager decisions about this. I, I'm fine. I'm fine with telling people not to do it. I think you probably could have a way to do it, have get people to do it safely. Um, but that's you know that's that's not the not the purpose of, of this show. So. Um, so I don't, I don't object to the recommendation from the folks at Wisconsin. I would say it is out of, and you, you mentioned that the, this Wisconsin article was from 2016. Yes. My, the, do, the date that I'm seeing on the copy that I found on the internet is 2007. So uh, maybe there's a different, different document out there, which that's a whole other problem is why do they have multiple documents out there that have different dates, right? And the potentially different recommendations. That's a, that's a, a information management problem, but um, so I would say that their recommendation at Wisconsin, um, is out of step, but I, I don't, I can't fault it, uh, because as long as you are using the appropriate solution and you are not using it, you certainly don't want to use it on something that people are going to eat. But at the same time, again, let's, let's, let's dither a little bit more, um, when, uh, uh leafy greens come out of the field. Uh, people are, you know, per processors in their packing house and their, 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 their uh, you know, in their post-process handling, they are going to use bleach or other sanitizers on those products. And I guess, I guess the idea here is that we only want bleach to be in the hands of people who nominally know what they're doing. And we don't want to put it in the hands of consumers who might not know what they're doing. Now, I think that judges uh, both uh, processors or, or post-process handling produce people, it judges them perhaps with a broad brush as well as judging consumers with a broad brush. So I, I, so my personal opinion, uh, you know, which is where we would land on a risky or not, is that yep. done properly, this is an acceptable practice. I understand why um, maybe we're not telling people to do it. Um, just like we tell people not to wash, triple wash produce, right? I understand the reasons why. And I'll quote, I want to know, I want to know what the quote unquote official recommendation is before I tell you what I think as a, as a, a scientist and as a person who's not afraid to disagree with dogma. So anyway, that's my, that's my rather long and rambly rant on the topic. Well, no, mm -hmm. and that, I, I mean, that's exactly where, where I am, right. Mm -hmm. With, with this. And, um, you know, as we try to distill some of this information down there, you know, we know, and, and so, you know, seven back, what am I concerned about in floodwaters? It actually is different from a flooding event or a rain event in a garden versus floods like we're seeing in, in Western North Carolina. Um, because in, in my, in a garden situation, I would expect that, yes, there's going to be potential for pathogen movement from other parts of my, of my garden there, but I'm not getting like oil or lubricants or chemical contamination that's coming from garages or industrial processes that, that have leaked out of people's 
you know, businesses and, and homes towards this, this produce. As those floodwaters recede, you know, the, it might sit there for quite some time. That chemical contamination is really my, my concern. Flooded garden from a rain. And th this is the, like, this is the hard part. Flooded garden from a heavy rain in a garden is not the same as floodwaters that from a from a whole like river overflowing banks and sitting there to me right like i think oh, the, great 100 yes yeah the, yeah, the, the risk is, the risk is different right the probability to get it to a quantitative risk assessment the probability that there will be pathogens there is different right and again i doubt somebody has done a full-blown quantitative microbial risk assessment but one could do that and one could you know, make a, make an assessment is how many orders of magnitude different is the risk of this versus that. Right. 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 And what is like communicating that this is the part that I think is really hard. So, you know, do we have two different um, documents of, you know, pro safely, safely using produce from flooded gardens from, you know, a thunderstorm versus safely using produce from flooded gardens from, uh, a hundred year weather event and six days of, of, of sitting underwater. Um, and, and how do we, how, how does one assess that? What's the right document for me as a person to use? Um, you know, like that, that, that part is, is really, really difficult to me. Like that it's, it's, a, it's a, so, so if I was, you know, I wouldn't, for, for me, I wouldn't use any of this produce. And not again for pathogen concerns, and that's where the focus mm, here is. Right. And I and I get it. I know why the focus is here because we've seen from other previous produce-related outbreaks that a flood, that a rain event that leads to flooding, moving animal pathogens towards my garden, it has has been identified as a risk factor in many different outbreaks. Right. So so if I take that produce and then I want to eat it raw, well, this this sanitizing step. Um, is, 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 is like certainly has the ability to reduce risk, you know, a little bit. Um, canning that produce also is going to reduce risk, right? Like it, it, the path of, you know, we're, we're, when we can, um, you know, I don't know, potatoes here, they're going in a pressure canner. It, it, you're going to get 11 log reduction of the vegetative pathogens if you pressure can potatoes for 90 minutes. You know, like it, it's it, the, the nothing. You know, you you can reduce you can reduce those um, those microbial risks. Right, but not but not heavy metals. Right, right. right. That's the yeah. That's that's the thing. So we, you know, we we I think we have to talk about heavy metals and chemical contaminants in this situation. And so anyway, what, what the fallout is, and I'll, I'll share this because I think this, you know, the um, uh, Renee Nameless, who, who, who called us out on this yet, you know, yesterday, but brings up a really good point. Trying to do this in a social media way is somewhat problematic because you're trying to distill this down to two or three lines, like 60 words. Um, and, and I'll share this, I don't know if I probably don't have a good way, um, Don, to share the, um, well, I, no, actually, you know what? I can post this on the, in, in show notes, but let me, um, let me find exactly what we have created in the past. So, so where this all came from was, um, someone, someone asked us, what have you done in the past for flooding? Um, and I think we, I, I, I feel like we need to revisit the two things that I'm going to drop into our text channel because 
this again, it, it is contextually, it is a problem. Um, and the way that it's put put together here, we don't we're we're missing we're missing sort of the um, I think the nuance of this. So so I'll read it. Preserving flood contaminated garden products. That's the that's the title. Um, pro, the bullet is produce from a flooded garden that can be washed, sanitized, and cooked may safely be home canned. If produce is unfit to sit to eat because of floodwaters, do not can. And what we're missing in that, that's a standalone, you know, bullet. And we'll I'll get to the second bullet in a second because it's the sec next thing I want to ask you about. Um, but but it doesn't, it it misses chemical contamination. It doesn't, you know, it puts it, it puts the the reader of this into a spot where we assume that if when I say produce unfit to eat because of floodwaters, that they understand what that means. And I don't think we've done a good job explaining that. The first one that, you know, I guess a companion piece that goes, oh, the, the companion piece that, that goes with this, um, I think, you know, it gets into this, uh, you know, food with, um, silt, raw sewage, oil, chemicals, making it unsafe to eat. That on its own is ex explanatory. But if you only saw the second um, item here, you wouldn't maybe know. Like, I don't think we're doing a good enough job, basically. And thanks to, you know, Renee Nameless for, for calling us out on this, because the more I looked at it, the more I was like, yes, we we're missing for the context of what's happening right now. Um, all right. Second thing I want to ask you about is this uh, this bullet? It also it came out of the um, the Wisconsin document, but this bullet that says produce from a flooded garden should not be dehydrated, as the temperature of home dehydrators is not high enough to kill bacteria. What what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it makes sense, right? That the temp the dehydrator temperatures are not hot enough to kill bacteria, and then there's also the whole complicated thing about well. Um, it's dry, it's a dry heat, yeah. right? And that, so, yeah. So, so, and, and, and I agree, I agree with that as well. So it, but, um, and this is, uh, it, I'll read it from the Wisconsin document. Um, you know, flood damaged garden produce that is otherwise unfit for eating should not be canned or otherwise preserved. Um, because the low temperature of home dehydrators does not destroy high numbers of bacteria, do not attempt to dehydrate produce from flooded gardens. So essentially, if there is an increased chance of pathogens on that produce, like I want to make fruit leather or dehydrated, you know, apples aren't a good example because if my floodwaters are reaching my, the height of my apple tree, that's, that's a big, that's a big flood. But like in a normal everyday situation, um, using this, like it, I, I think it's both time and temperature, first of all. And the dry heat may get me some kill, but also may preserve, especially, you know, let's put salmonella, pathogenic E. coli, and listeria into a category where we've certainly seen in, in dry heat, you know, nuts and other dried legumes, there, there, there is a, 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 just a bevy of literature that shows that, um, that you can heat stress that low moisture food. So by, you know, making it even lower moisture, um, it, it preserves that, that salmonella, but I don't, you know, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I want us to better describe that. Like I want us to my, I want my team to better, um, 
to, to just, I don't know, better explain what we mean by this, because, because it, again, if we look at that second one that I, that I sent you, it doesn't say anything about no matter what, if there's motor oil on your produce, yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. We're right. not worried. We're, we're not worried about bacteria anymore. Right. Right. And, and I think we could do, we meaning the collective, we in extension could do a better job. We do a pretty good job of telling people what to do. We don't always do a good job of telling them why we are giving them that recommendation, right? And it's very easy to fall into the trap of like, I'm the expert, here's what I say to do. Um, Don't bother me with the details. Don't ask me questions, which is fine until someone starts asking questions. And, And then like, and are they, you know, somebody sends you, and again, you've had this, I'm sure you, you have a county person send you a something and say, this says this, why? Yeah. Right. Or this is not consistent with this other thing. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's a good, good catch. They're, they're not consistent. And then let's try to unpack why these two documents might be saying different things. And if you haven't provided that background or that context, then uh, people are just left wondering, right? And so we could definitely do a better job of, of, of giving people the appropriate context. Are we talking about motor oil? Are we talking about heavy metals? Are we talking about uh, pathogens? Right, right, right. So the last thing I wanna, wanna highlight before we leave this goes back to that clean, sanitize fruit. So in the food code, cause you know, it's like you, you and I, it's one of our favorite documents, right? I would, I would put it up there as, as one that I'm, I'm using a lot. I think, I think it's, it gives us some, some, in, in some cases, good science in other cases, good politics. Um, but, uh, but it does have a section on washing fruits and vegetables. And I wonder if, and again, this is more speculation that clean and sanitize um, piece that's in the Wisconsin document is is maybe transposing some of this. So from 3-302.115, washing fruits and vegetables um, of the food code, um, in part B, uh, uh, fruits and vegetables may be washed using chemicals as specified under 7-204.12.12. Uh, and, and it doesn't say here, and this is the, I think the most important part on for our discussion doesn't say fruits and vegetables may be sanitized using chemicals. It says mm-hmm. may be washed. And if you go to that part that it references 7-204.12, uh, it, it, it is specifically chemicals for washing, treatment, storage, and processing fruits and vegetables, comma, criteria. Chemicals, including those generated on site, used to wash or peel raw whole fruits and vegetables or used in the treatment, storage and processing vegetables shall be, um, you know, approved additive, generally recognized as safe, be the subject of an effective food contact notification if this is the intended use and meet the requirements of another CFR for labeling requirements and pesticides. But doesn't, nowhere in the food code do we talk about sanitizing produce or fruits and vegetables. We talk about washing produce in chemicals or for treatment and storage, which is nuance, right? Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. maybe a little Weasley, but I think that that's where this came from. If I can, if I can guess at it is that we do have applications in restaurants where someone may rinse or wash, um, ready to eat produce with a, you know, quote chemical that is 
in, in some cases used as a surface sanitizer at a, a different concentration or the same concentration um, to reduce pathogen risk on the outside of, of that, of said fruit and vegetable. And, and so that's, that's another, like, this is, you know, like, like I said, this is the place where we are able to dither and equivocate. That's another, like, uh, thing. And you, you mentioned this in the washing, you know, cut leafy greens, this is something that, that happens. So can we do this to reduce risk? If someone's going to eat their flooded garden vegetables, right? Because again, this is a, it, it's this value judgment that I worry about. We, someone who's uh, growing vegetables because they have, they don't have the means to purchase vegetables, right? They, they you know, they're, they're a food, they're experiencing food disparity. Now, all of a sudden, it's easy for you and I to say, throw it all out because it's been touched by floodwaters. But that's a much harder conversation to have if now the choice is do something with those that floodwater touched produce or don't eat, right? Like, right. It's, this, it's a mess. Like, not, not a mess. It's hard. This is hard. Yeah. And just to, just to, again, I want to unpack because you, you, you skated over this pretty quickly, right? But, but yeah. you, we, you mentioned section three of the food code, right? Now, I just want to point out that to understand and interpret that, you had to, first of all, know where to find it in section three of the food code, <laughs> which is about food. You had to then go to, to chapter seven of the food code, which is on poisonous or toxic materials. Once you got to that section of the food code, you then had to go to the code of federal regulations, right? Yep. Which is a, and you had to go to two different chapters in the CFR, one of which is a chapter that links to FDA regulations, okay, which is 21 CFR, uh, part 173. And then you had to go to 40 CFR, which I suspect is the EPA part of the Code of Federal Regulations, okay? And so that is one, two, three different jumps, one within the document and two to external documents that don't regulate, uh, like, like the 21 CFR and 40 CFR are not for restaurants, right? But, well, but because of this weird regulatory process by how we write the FDA model food code, which then gets adopted by, by the states, um, we always want to make that code consistent with the federal regulations wherever we can. Um, but at the same time, the process by which the food code is made is different than by which how the code of federal regulations is made. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, laws and sausages and guidance about roaster pigs. That's my new favorite, <laughs> my yeah. two favorite phrase from last week. Um, it's complicated. Uh, yeah. And yet we've got to, we've still got to come back and try to give somebody a, a, a useful answer about what to do when their garden floods. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And, and, in the, you know, how this whole conversation came up was, the perspective of what we tell consumers and what a commercial entity is is told and what the terminologies that they were using and what we would tell someone who wants to not take their garden flooded crops but take their field that has been touched by flood water flooded crops and put them into the commercial food stream and and that the 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 agency that does that is different from the agency that communicates to consumers. And it's, it is, this is a, like, 
you know, for lack of a better term, it is a mess. It's a mess that, that you and I navigate on a daily basis. And I, Oh yeah. And I, let, let me, let me, I wouldn't say it's a mess. A mess okay. Yeah, that's Cause a mess, a mess implies chaos. Um, yes. It's just really confusing. Yes. Right. It's absolutely, it's a very well-organized, highly complicated document that may be messy and inconsistent in parts, but it's it, it and it's certainly not the way that you would have designed something if you could design it from scratch starting today, right? But it 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 functions in a in a fashion, um, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a you know it's a li- little bit of a Rube Goldberg device. It's a bit rickety. It's a bit, but you know it's it's what we've got, and so you know it, it is what and and so and the now the problem becomes understanding it and interpreting it. And again, you know you can you can different people can interpret the same thing different ways too. And we saw this again. So Ben and I are fresh off of a week of attending the conference for food protection where like we heard people argue about like stuff like this or about we heard people argue about um you know about the 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 language that is the sort of the jumping off point that we've used as a jumping off point for our discussions here today and and should that language be be changed um and and it turns out yeah you can eventually change it um, if you fight hard enough and you get enough people to agree with you that, yeah, this ought to say this instead of that. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, okay. So this, this conversation made me think about a conversation that I had with, um, with friend, uh, you know, a friend of the show friend that we, we both know well, who is currently in their process of, uh, about to interview for, for a job and a job in extension. And, and so I had a really, really nice conversation um, with this individual. And, and we talked about how as a graduate student, you, you might not know exactly what extension is all about, what it, what the what, what the organizational dynamics are, who, what, what, what a focus looks like. And it's all different at different institutions, but but ultimately the you know, the, the nuances are different, I should say, but ultimately you're, you're you know, in, in the world of extension, our job is to help, you know, um, uh, some stakeholder. And, and for me, it's largely retailers, um, food service operators, regulators, and consumers navigate the science and regulations of food safety so that they know how to make food. So A, it doesn't make people sick, it, you know, in their home or, or what they're selling and B to be in compliance with the law. And one of the things that I missed telling this individual that I'm going to sh- follow up with, with an email afterward done this episode is how much of my job as an extension specialist is about navigating the law and answering the question of why sometimes it's in there, understanding the nuances of it, helping regulators understand the nuance of the science that's in there, um, training them on it. Like there's a lot about this that is, is, is really part of how I've approached extension, but, but no one, you know, I didn't take any classes. Well, and, and I, you know, I lived in a different system than, than here in extension in the U S but I certainly, there are not a lot of classes that tell you how to read the food code. Right. And, oh yeah. Yeah. That's something that you, you and I, and not, it's not just you and I, but all of our colleagues who are involved in FISMA or the produce rule or the preventive controls rule, 
low acid canned foods, acidified foods, you know, food code, uh, good manufacturing practices, all of those things, right? We, we have had to, on the job, learn how to navigate that, find the, the, the people throughout the country who have implemented and have more information to help with the interpretation, and then build the education pieces sort of out of that with those insights. But there's no, I mean, and, and it's, it, it's not like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the case that there should be classes on this. Cause I don't think it's necessary for anybody, for everybody, but it is like, it's taken me a decade to be comfortable with the food code, you know, to, to, to get to, Hey, I know because we just sat in, in CFP last week, as you mentioned that there is a section on um, produce washing in the food code, how can I find it really quickly so I can talk about it on the podcast? And then I had to like, you know, how I got to it was um, produce. No, it's not under produce because we're talking about fruits and vegetables. It's not, um, so now let me talk find fruit, fruits and vegetables. Oh, wait, is it washing or is it rinsing? Well, I know we were talking about chemicals. Let me look up chemicals. And, and all of those steps is how I got to those two sections as, you know, quick as I did so we could talk about it. But it is, it's a, it, it's, I, I don't know. It's a bare, it's overwhelming when you're new to it. It's less overwhelming after you've looked at it, a, a, you know, a dozen or a hundred times. And it's, it's, it's comfortable when you're, you're sitting at the table at, talking about the, the rule changes. Um, it, but, but it is not, you know, if, if there's someone out there who is looking for, you know, advice on jobs in academia and food safety, whether it's going to be research extension or teaching, at some point, you, you have to become at least familiar with what the laws are and what the rules are. Um, and that is, oh, it, it was certainly overwhelming for me. And it, and it is over, an overwhelming task at the start of it, I, I, you know, I think. Yeah, and 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 again, students getting uh, an undergraduate education in uh, in food science. I believe one of the requirements of the Institute of Food Technologists for a program to be accredited is to have a class on food law. But what does that even mean, right? And it, what it what it ends up in many cases being, I think, is a class on the Code of Federal Regulations. But that is not food law. That is one slice of, it's a big slice, but, but it's not all of food law because you also have to, let's, let's take it out to the biggest and then to the smallest. On a global scale, we have the, the Codex Alimentarius, right? And, and, and we, have, we have that process, which is nominally about world trade. And so if you have products that's in, in trade in the world and you have a trade dispute, then you know, Codex Alimentarius is going to come into play. And then at the federal level in the United States, you've got uh, 21 CFR and uh, 9 CFR. Uh, 21 CFR is FDA, 9 CFR is USDA, but then we've also got 40 CFR, which is, at, which is EPA, right? We've got the, this model food code, which is not a regulation, but a model regulation that gets adopted by the states. And then you've got the state implementations of that, right? And so again, 
you know, and, and with the way that I've touched the food code in a couple of different ways is around hand washing and, right. and hand washing includes stuff on, I mean, it's stuff from uh, chapter two management and personnel, how you wash your food, but guess what? There's also stuff on hand washing in chapter five, which is water plumbing and waste, because how do you wash your hands? You wash your hands in a hand sink, which is covered by chapter five. And, and that's the provision of the code that talks about the temperature for washing from water for washing your hands, which was again, not surprisingly uh, an issue that we discussed uh, last week. But then to give you an even further wrinkle and, and a further like deep dive into this, I got a call uh, this week from, uh, from a friend of ours, a county agent asking about honey. And it turns out that the honey regulations in New Jersey are changing because we are finally getting cottage food laws in New Jersey. And those cottage food laws are going to impact honey producers. And then so trying to figure out what do, what kind of training do honey producers need? And it turns out because of the way the cottage food law was is going to be implemented implemented in New Jersey, if you are a honey processor, you are going to have to go and essentially be serve safe uh, certified, right? And so you're going to have to go for this rather extensive training, which is probably overkill for a honey producer. But that's the that's that's what we've got, and 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 the honey producers in New Jersey are not happy about this because they were previously grandfathered under uh, the provision that honey was a was a raw agricultural commodity, and therefore you know would would fall under the same rules as other raw agricultural commodities, which have also changed over time with the implementation of the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is again, is, is, is an act signed by Congress that then went into components of 21 CFR and changed those, uh, changed those uh, specific components. And so it is, it is really, and so what I, would, what I would want people to understand, what I think you have to understand if you're going to be a good extension professional is you don't have to know the details of any of this, but to me, you have to know how these things are interconnected. Right. You have to know how, why is it, uh, how could it be that a honey producer in New Jersey is going to have to do something differently? Well, it's because of this New Jersey rule change, which is coinciding with uh, an, another change to the, the New Jersey code, where we are going to adopt by reference for the most part, the FDA model code, which we had not done previously, right? And so you have to know, okay, New Jersey food code is chapter 24. It used to be chapter 12, then they updated it and it became chapter 24. Now it's still going to be chapter 24, but it's going to be considerably changed because we're going to adopt by reference a lot of the FDA model code, except for the stuff that we don't want to change, right? And so it re and so really what I would like, what I believe extension professionals should be proficient at is understanding the connections between all of this. And, and honestly, in many cases, knowing who to talk to, right? Like right, I know right. if I have a question about the state code, I know the people in the Department of Health that I can contact. If I have a question about the uh, FDA uh, 21 CFR, I got uh, some friends at FDA. I got some friends that are retired from FDA that I know that I can talk to. Same thing for USDA FSIS, right? Less 
good contacts when it comes to EPA, but you know what? You know who really knows the EPA rules really well? Our friends that work for companies that make chemicals that are regulated by that. And so I know who I can, I can contact. I can contact our friend Chip or our friend Anna, and I know that they know those, those 40 CFR rules so they could recite them in their sleep. And they understand the implementation of those rules because it impacts their ability to sell chemicals, right? And so, right. But, but how, do, I mean, if you had asked me when I started at Extension, like, you know, 30 plus years ago, what's the network you're going to need to build? I don't think I could have told you that, No, <laughs> but, but, but I built it and it works and, 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 and it works pretty well, uh, even though it's, again, it's not never a system that anybody would have designed. Um, but, but it's what we've got and we just have to navigate it until, well, until we have a, you know, until we, we, we unify FDA and USDA into a single food safety agency, which, you know, we talk, we need to talk about it at least every five or 10 years. Right. Right. Which will, which will never happen. And I can tell you coming from a country where it is all unified, doesn't fix anything. Doesn't fix anything. <laughs> so, right. So it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, yeah. So um, a couple of things I want to want to circle back to. I uh, will link to a couple of uh, the, the quick syllabi that I could find um, on the Internet uh, for food laws in undergraduate courses. And again, of course, they're not available from my institute or your institute that I could find. But I did find one from uh, the University of Vermont, which I thought was really interesting. So it goes back to. All right. Here's what we are teaching students. History of food regulation, three branches of government, the legislative process, um, overview of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, right? Like there's there, that's one you know conversation. Here's an overview of this massive piece of legislation. Because what else do you have time to do? Overview of the Food Safety Modernization Act, regulation of food sanitation, regulation of meat and poultry, food standards, regulations of GMOs. Um, regulation of pesticides in food, product liability, toxicological testing methods. That's one, one example from um, Vermont. Another example that I found from Western Kentucky University, I think, um, was, it, you know, it, it talked about labeling laws, nutrition labeling, nu nutrient level claims, health claims, regulations of standard and identity and quality. Um, they do talk about uh, uh, HACCP regulations and acidified foods, but dietary supplements. So it's it's like everything because it is complicated. Your your honey example is perfect for this. There there are many different places where products like that get touched, and and I, somewhere someone told me, and I, I you know well I'll just paraphrase it and maybe you told me, but there's something like 17 federal agencies and. You know, departments that that touch the safety of food production, packaging, and sales, right? Like it's not just food safety, but all of those things. So, you, so as a food manufacturer, or as a grower, um, or as a restaurant, I, I I'm touched by so many different like levels of regulation that it is really complicated. So being an extension person that works with those stakeholders, I need to help them navigate that. So it's, it's overwhelming, right? Like there's a lot, there's a, and, and I think that I, I agree with you hundred percent. It's not, you and I don't have the food code memorized. Like I know how to use it. Mm -hmm. I know how to go to it and find the thing that I, I think someone's asking about. And it's, it's often, you know, it might take me two or three or five times to find it. I'm, I'm not putting my finger on it immediately, but I know how to use the document and I know where to, where, you know, 
where to find sometimes where it came from. And at least the, the Conference for Food Protection Processes has showed me that, you know, sometimes there's a lot of good science behind it. And sometimes it just sounded good and that it's hard. And, and it came up in our, in our deliberations. And, and I don't know if you caught this one of the councils, but I won't throw, um, oh, well, one of our federal agency um, partners who is on um, uh, council with us said, it's not up to FDA to justify why it's in the food code. If you want to change it, it's up to you to justify why it shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. We, which, which is true, right? Like that's, you know, yep. because it's, it, it has evolved over time and it's, we're, we're not going item by item saying, should it still be in here? You, you need to give us justification on, on the why it shouldn't. Um, it's, it's in your, it's in your, the ball is in your court. So anyway, it was, yeah, this is, but this is a lot of what we do. Right, like because the science questions that we formulate come out of this: of well, where is the gap in the regulation? Are the regulations here? How do we? Is, is does it need to be as conservative as it is? And and so so a lot of the applied research that that you and I do and colleagues like us do comes from this regulation threshold. Sometimes you know it's it's it, or it's. We have a new problem that is that has come up. Do we need to set some sort of regulatory threshold that is different that doesn't exist? Um, and I'm going to give a call out to our friend, um, who uh, again thinks she's banned from the show, but we've rescinded the ban many years ago. Um, Val, oh. <laughs> um, what, she, so Michelle Daniluk wrote a paper. Um, and I'll, let me find while, while you do that, I've got, I just got a little bit of, of follow-up here. So you, you had sent me links for a couple of, uh, online or a couple of courses on food regulations. One is, uh, from, uh, 2019, uh, course at the university of Vermont, uh, taught by Stephen Pintaro. And I, in a, like a weird connection, uh, Stephen's father was Nick Pintaro, who was the extension specialist at Rutgers, who I replaced when I joined the faculty 30 years ago. So that was a, a, blast, a blast from the past. And so we'll link to the uh, the syllabus for, for Stephen's course, and we'll link to his uh, webpage. And I'm I'm not 100% certain. I'm, I'm high, highly certain. And I looked at the CV, and he's born in Bayonne, New Jersey. And he sure looks a heck of a lot like uh, the guy that I think was his dad. So I'm pretty sure that uh, Stephen Pintaro is Nick's, Pintaro's son. And Nick was a, was a great guy and very wonderful uh, and helpful uh, guy. You also linked to a course uh, by uh, Hannah Coria uh, from um, uh, Western Kentucky University on food law. And then I'll also uh, put in a plug for the uh, uh, current issues in food science and food law that's taught by my department, and it's co-taught by three people. It's taught by Carl Matthews, who's a microbiologist, uh, Bev Tepper, who's a sensory scientist, but who knows about nutrition. And so she talks about nutritional labeling, which is a whole separate part of food law that you would need to learn as a, as a food scientist. Um, and then finally, it is also taught by... Um, uh, uh, Robert Post, who, who is not a faculty member, but who I believe is a lawyer. And he, he also teaches about, about food regulations in this, in this class, uh, for our uh, undergraduate students. So food law is complicated. You cannot possibly cover it in a one semester course, but, uh, you know, you, you need to cover, I think the, the, the general framework. Um, and, uh, yeah, and every, every food law class is going to be different and there are probably some that are uh, better than others. 
Yeah, absolutely. You, you gave me almost enough time mm -hmm. to find what I was, what I was looking for, but not, quite. Uh, but not quite enough. So, so here's, here's what I'm looking for. There's, there's a paper and I will find this for show notes mm -hmm. um, to, to include, but there is a wonderful paper that um, the Michelle Daniluk um, uh, wrote, uh, I think was either you know, senior author or, or lead author on that, that compared the produce wa produce rule water you know testing standards I can't remember exactly what it's mm -hmm. called and and basically showed um, the thresholds that were described in their produce rule water rule were both too conservative and not conservative enough depending on what pathogens you were looking for ah, perfect and and it but but that like you know if 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 we can think about what we do as scientists who are in extension that that's it right like that is there's a business there's an industry out there that is dealing with something that we need to help them figure out and we're we're here to to generate data or analyze data that already exists to help to help answer those those questions and it's like I don't know. It's like that. I, I come back to that, to that paper so often. And I wish I could find that. Is it, is it evaluating the U S food safety modernization act produce safety rule standard for microbiological quality of agricultural water for growing produce by that, Havilar et al. It might be, it might, is it, yeah. Is it, 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 it's entirely possible that that's it. Um, but yeah, it, it is like, it's such a good, example of you know if it, and I, I wish i had thought about it before mm -hmm. i talked to this um you know this friend of ours and, and student to say this is the type of thing that you should be thinking about doing when you get into an extension position because you know we we have to be um we we have to be advocates for public health and we have to also walk the line of making sure that science-based and risk-based approaches to food safety are applied to the food industry and sometimes those things align and sometimes they don't um and and that's the like that that's what that's what we do. like to, to me that's what we do like a lot of what we do is is exactly that um, well, I, I I like this paper because I actually presented some data from the paper at uh, IAFP, I think the last time that we were actually in person. And I was a little bit nervous because Ari Havilar, who is the lead author, was in the audience. Uh, and I was really delighted. He came up to me afterward and said in his very Dutch way, that was very good. I think you explained it better than we did in the paper. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, cool. Well, anyway, I will... Yeah. Uh, I will link to that. We'll, we'll link. We'll link to that, and then if you find another one that is a more appropriate one, we'll link to that as well. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, okay. Cool. So let's get into. I mean, now we're an hour and a half in, but we don't have our little clock anymore. I, I miss my. I miss my little uh, uh, call recorder clock. Me too. Me too. Um, so I want. There's a couple of things in in our text. Oh yes. That I want you to talk about. One is riskier not feedback don messes up oh yes so uh, so this is from uh, a listener of the show named pat uh who says this is feedback about an episode episode 185 suggested edit during the episode 
talking about cooking an egg on rice. I hear Dr. Shatner say, so first of all, Pat, I've got some notes for you on my name. Nope. Uh, I hear Dr. Shatner say, not risky at 558. Thank you, Pat, for providing the timestamp. Dr. Chapman questions him at 621, who replies, I said risky. The conversation implies an assessment of risky and the webpage too. Consider editing those two spots to clarify the podcast. Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna go back and edit the podcast. I might edit the show notes and the description after I listen to it. I know, and I have to say, you know, Pat's a fan, obviously. I like listening to your show. Have a great day. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, so thank you, Pat, for your feedback. Um, I have not gone back to listen to the show, but I will at some point. And I, I'm not going to edit the show, but I but I might edit the the show description, as I said. Yeah. Well, and so you, uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't re-listened to it, but the website clearly uh, does say that we both thought it was risky. Um, and maybe maybe this is one where at the end I convinced you that it was risky. Or you said not risky just erroneously, but but I, you know, at least we're not, I, I feel like we're not we're not killing people over our um and this this is again for listeners of the show who love how I pronounce things because we get e emails about that um every once in a while. Um let me uh do a little follow-up on that. Um uh basically um uh, <laughs> this this game from uh, a you know, listener of the show, uh, Two Bit Shy, who wrote uh, last week, Dr. Zippy Dank. I just have to let you know your attempt at pronunciations of words always gives me a good laugh for my day. <laughs> Thank you, good sir. Um, and to which I responded, uh, LOL, I'm li literally the worst pronouncer in the world, copying Don, or as he's known to Pat, uh, Dr. Shatner, uh, because he will love this. And you responded, um, I do. Uh, <laughs> um, so any, anyway, uh, the reason why I thought of that was, um, I will now butcher the name episode of 185 risky or not, which is Tamago, Tamago, Kaki Gohan, uh, where, where Dr. Don and professor Ben talk about the risks of Tamago, Kaki Gohan cooking an egg with hot rice. Um, so, and I'm still firmly risky regardless of, of what Pat, um, you know, uh, Pat's feedback on what you said. Um, so, um, so we've got, we've got that, uh, do you want to talk about this, uh, this deli meat outbreak that's yeah, going let's, on? I do because yeah. there is, this, this has a number of, well, so first of all, um, uh, Merlin and uh, John Sarkusa have been talking about these hoagie deli meat sandwiches on the last couple episodes of Reconcilable Differences. So I feel like it would be appropriate to to talk about them just if nothing other reason than to link to that show. Yes. So, so yeah. So, so what, um, you know, as of, as of yesterday, um, CDC uh, released a, an outbreak well, actually two outbreak uh, notifications linked to Italian style meats. And so I looked at the headline, and I was like, well, what's an Italian style meat? And so again, oh, you, you are behind on your rec diffs, obviously, because well, they talk all about this. Yeah. But, but I, it, like I, I get meats that are, that are purchased at Italian style delis, but okay. the things that I'm eating Italian yeah. style, style meats. So, um, and CDC and partners are investigating two salmonella outbreaks linked to Italian style meats. People in both outbreaks report eating salami, prosciutto, and other meats that can be found in the uh, antipasto or charcuterie assortments before getting sick. Can be found both outbreaks. 
reported. Oh, that's a really, that's a difficult, let me re- reread that. <laughs> yes, let's parse that one more time. People in both outra- outbreaks report eating salami, prosciutto, and other meats that can be found in the antipasto or charcuterie assortments before getting sick. I, I wouldn't have written the sentence that way. Mm-hmm. Um, investigators are working to identify contaminated products and determine if the two outbreaks are linked to the same food source. Um, so uh, what what do we know about this? Well, we've got um, uh, six, 36 illnesses, 12 hospitalizations across 17 states. We don't have a recall because the product hasn't been um, uh, identified yet. Um, really, investigation details are, um, you know, I, I guess a little bit, um, uh, you know, messy. We've got an outbreak of typhimerium and we've got an outbreak of salmonella typhimerium and an outbreak of salmonella infantis, um, a similar time frame. So typhimerium, May 30th to July 27th, uh, the infantis, May 9th to June 14th, um, uh, the typhimerium cases, 14 states, um, the Salmonella Infantis infections uh, from um, uh, seven states. There are crossover states here, so you know they're, they, that that's com- complicating things. That's different than a flyover state. It is a crossover state. Okay. It's a crossover state. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, of the eight people, so in the Infantis uh, outbreak, we've got um, thirteen people. We've done interviews with eight. said they ate Italian style meats, including salami and prosciutto. Um, In the Salmonella typhimerium, 88% of the the, um, uh, 16 people uh, that they interviewed ate Italian style meats, including salami, prosciutto, copa, and sapressata. And and so we're, we're, we're thinking that that's where, where it's at. Yeah, so I do. I do want to. Um, so part of the reason for wanting to talk about this too was to talk about some comments from our friend uh, Dr. Linda Harris, yes. who, who writes to us in text message. What are your thoughts of CDC defaulting to FoodNet data 2018-2019 as the quote case controls in outbreak epidemiology? Still, Linda seems with this recent Italian sausage thing. I don't think it's an Italian sausage thing, but that's fine. Close enough. Uh, knew what she was talking about. Uh, it could be off, like maybe it was with onions. And then Michelle chimes in and cyclospora. And then <laughs> Linda writes like this. And then she links to an article entitled Stuck at Home Americans Crave Italian Deli Meats um, uh, from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, so what she's saying basically, which is a, it's a good, it's a yeah. logical, uh, like a numerical, a numerate comment. It's like, well, you got to get the denominator right, right? It's, right. And so it's, if you're, you, what we're looking for is, uh, you know, things that are like a, a statistical pattern that is anomalous. But if the, if the pandemic has changed that denominator, then it's, maybe it's not anomalous anymore. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. And, and so, um, and what, what, what um, Linda's talking about in FoodNet is, is this line that appears in both 
aspects of this investigation. And it's new. I have not seen mm-hmm. this. Like Linda brought out something here that I've not seen happen before. And it'd be interesting to hear. We, we know we certainly have some, some listeners on the inside of CDC that can shed some light on this, as well as FDA, although this isn't an FDA regulated product. But mm-hmm. um, this percentage, so um, I'll, I'll read just for the context. Uh, and this is in the Infantis. Of the eight people with information, 100% um, eight Italian style meats, including salami and prosciutto that can often be found in antipasto, charcuterie assortments. Several brands were reported. This percentage was significantly higher than the 40% of respondents who reported eating pepperoni or, or other Italian style meats in the food net population survey. And I will highlight Linda, like to me, I agree. I don't think about pepperoni. Like, so CDC is, is looking for some connection, right? Like, what do we know about what people eat? And, and what that means for, for illnesses, um, a pepperoni, you know, Don, where do you eat pepperoni? Like, like if you eat pepperoni, my living room in, in your living room. True. Me too. Uh, at, sometimes at the pool, most, most <laughs> of the time, all of my pepperoni consumption happens as it relates to pizza. Pizza. Yeah. So I would say that uh, me is probably half of its pizza. Well, so first of all, none of it is, is, uh, well, that's not true. If it's, if it's, if it's pepperoni on pizza, then it's what do you usually make pepperoni out of pork? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. But if it's pepperoni in my living room, not on a pizza, it's turkey pepperoni, uh, which I have with like cheese and crackers as a evening snack. As a charcuterie. I eat uh, eat a lot of. Yeah, exactly. Which I eat a lot of, but that is a, you know, it's usually uh, not to chill for Bridgeford foods, but it's usually from made by Bridgeford foods. It's basically whatever you can get at Wegmans or whatever the uh, grocery store is where we get that. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. But I would say coming back to your conversation Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, denominator, I would hazard a guess that most of the pepperoni that's consumed in the U.S. is on pizza. Oh, without a doubt. But, <laughs> right? like, but, but most of the other types of antipasto or charcuterie assortments are not. Right. right? But why? So so what, what CDC is, is nominally trying to equate here is respondents who reported eating pepperoni or other Italian style meats. I think the context on how I eat pepperoni or is other Italian style meats is, is very, very different. Well, uh, so yeah, so certainly pep, a lot of pepperoni is consumed on pizza, but if you are eating, um, you know, char- charcuterie Italian style meats, you are probably eating pepperoni in that context as well. True. Okay? Fair enough. Yeah. But I would, I, I, um, historically before, um, uh, the silent killer happened, um, <laughs> See, see episode, the silent killer. Um, before, before that I, I was consuming quite a bit of Italian Mm -hmm. style meats in charcuterie. I was certainly, and again, N equals one, right? This is me. I was certainly eating pepperoni in that, but also I would be eating way more pepperoni in a pizza sense. So the, 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 I, I think the denominator, once you include pepperoni, it changes everything. Um, if we were to ask people about a tether, other Italian style meats as its own question, I think you get a better sense of data that you can then probably use as um, an, an approximation for a comparative. I do agree with Linda that that's pretty hard to say that this is what we're using for our case control, um, but it's what you have in hand. Um, so, but the, I, thanks to Linda for linking to this um uh, stuck at home Americans crave uh, Italian deli meats because one of the things that that's in here is it talks about this the sales increases over um, re- really over the last you know let's say let's say two years um, 
uh, sales of Italian meat. So uh, retail growth of the meats accelerated as consumer behavior shifted during the pandemic. Plum Rose USA president Tom Lopez said in an email, sales of Italian meats have surged 21% and sales volumes are up 13% from pre-COVID levels. This was back in October. Um, another uh, company named True Story Foods has a, has a similar story. Um, the the California-based company added two sliced salami products, so Prasada and Genoa this year. Um, sales of those are up 40% from what they expected. And the company's charcuterie items are selling upwards of 50% more than sliced turkey or ham products. So that that also, like, you know, th this is something that we've talked about on this show um, in the past. As shifting, con and this is, I, I think this is exactly Linda's point. So so I don't want to, I don't want um, to uh, make this sound like I'm, I'm coming up with this, but as shifting consumption patterns exist, the, the, overall risk exposure that individuals have changes as well, right? Like we're eating more of this, this food in general in society. Maybe these illnesses always were there in the background, but wouldn't have risen to the level that would be notable enough that we could find outbreaks associated with it. Maybe this, but now all of a sudden more people eating it, this product, more data rolls in, um, we're able to connect the dots. I don't know that that's the case, but I think that there's a that, that's certainly an argument that I can get behind. Well, let me let me make a further argument. What if in the process of ramping up production of this in response to demand, the company begins to make mistakes yes. that it didn't make before because they're now doing way higher production volumes of this. And, and if you increase volumes, well, now maybe their smokehouse is not set right. Maybe their temperature controls are not good, right? And so there, there could be knock-on effects from that as well. So it might be that people are eating more. And, and again, I, and this is pure speculation. I have no evidence. These companies could all be doing, be fine companies doing a good job, but maybe people are eating more and it's riskier. Right, right. Well, and, and I'll add a, another further nuance of something I wanted to talk to you about today. And we talked about it in our previous episode, but about labor changes. Um, you yes. know, we, we've got um, something I've experienced over the last few days is a bus driver shortage here in Wake County, North Carolina, that impacted on day one of school for um, my, my eldest son, Jack, Monday, his bus was two hours late. Um, and the, the reason is that there is, I don't know what it is, 30% or 40% less bus drivers than, um, than, than really are needed. Um, and so there's a lot of combining of bus routes. There's a lot of sort of stops for buses that didn't exist before. Um, and, and, you know, it got better day two, his bus was only an hour and 10 minutes later than it was supposed to be. But that like literally his afternoon bus ride went from 45 minutes to almost three hours because of labor shortages. Um, I have a, a friend who's an airline pilot. He, uh, we had a recent conversation where he talked about like exactly this, the, the, the ripple effect of not having labor on, um, you know, gate staff and landing, um, you know, uh, whatever directional staff and uh, bagging offloading leads to delays in transportation there's just a massive ripple effect from our our you know our our labor situation right you know right now that certainly i you know i i think could be contributing to potentially to food safety issues because you've got a um a even high, we've always experienced high turnover now not only do we have high turnover but we have vacancies 
And in you know, you have, in, you have irate yeah. passengers on planes oh, shoving old shoving ladies. Old, yes, <laughs> we've got that. Something else I wanted to talk about that I put in here. I mean, this is a perfect time to um to talk about it because I think this part this is part of it. There was an article in the New York Times this weekend um the, on uh, the the title is he stayed afloat selling three dollar tacos. Now he faces two thousand dollars in fines. People who lost jobs in the pandemic began to peddle food and wares to survive. But New York City is starting to crack down on unlicensed vendors. The I, I think that there is certainly where did the labor go? Well, they went into the gig economy because or this you know th- this type of selling selling food driving for, for Uber, you know, shopping for Instacart, like other things arose over the last 18 months where people are, have a different experience in their job. They're making either more money or slightly less money, but their, their, their job, um, uh, happiness is, is better. And that's like, it all plays into this, right? Like, like I certainly could continue to see increased demand for products, less people that are there that are skilled working on it and just vacancies leading to, to, you know, the potential for food safety problems that, that it's something that our industry is, is battling for, you know, workforce with everybody else that's that, that, that out there, right? Like we're, we're already trying to compete and it's not like, you know, the, the things that, you know, I, I, I think without without getting into details, I think working in the food industry is hard, right? Like whether it's a restaurant, absolutely, a, a, you know, a retail store, it's not it's not easy work. You have to either get you have to find a way to enjoy it, or you have to you have to be remunerated in a way that that makes sense. And I I feel like we're in a spot where we're not doing either of those things for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. This, this is a great, this New York times article uh, is, is great. And we will, we will link to it. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I thought it was, it was one of the best things I read last weekend because it it's, it shows all the nuances of what we were talking about before on regulation too, right? You now have a different, the, the laws that we have weren't built for this type of food production or selling. Um, the, the economy that is being built out of it is, is important. So you kind of have to like roll with it, but it is, you know, like, it, I don't know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's changing how we're, how we're regulating food and some of the challenges that are out there. So yeah, check out the, he stayed afloat selling $3 tacos that we'll link to in show notes. Um, what, so I've dominated the conversation, Don, cause that's, it's my show. So that's what yeah. I, I always do what, where we, we, there's a little bit, uh, there's some more feedback um, in here. Don messes up. What's the wine feedback. I couldn't open it. Do you know what, oh. what it is? Oh, it's oh. bottle, bottle wine. Yeah. Um, and I don't, yeah, it's one of those things where I didn't save it. It looks like it's an HTML. I didn't. So sometimes when I save stuff, I don't put the right extension. Um yeah. It looks like it's that doesn't exist. All right. I don't know. Um, well, yeah, it's someone, probably, so, you know, Ben, somebody sent us some feedback on wine and we, we tried to, we tried to answer it, but we couldn't because technology. Yeah. Hey, the, the, you know, flooded wine. Okay. Uh, I do. 
I would like to talk about hedgehogs just because they're yeah. so cute. Let's talk about um, hedgehogs. <laughs> so we will link to uh, notes uh, from the field, a recurrence of a multi-state outbreak of Salmonella typhimurium infections linked to contact with hedgehogs. And I, I posted about this on Twitter because I figured, you know, it would be would be pretty uh, pretty funny and, and I might get some some humorous responses. I mean, it's it's not funny. People got sick from, from hedgehogs, but it just shows... Um, how comp well so first first of all it shows that hedgehogs are pets that can harbor salmonella so you know if you're going to have a hedgehog as a pet be aware of this but what i really want to focus on is the figure from this manuscript which shows uh so it's uh tr it's, the the title is uh traceback of hedgehogs associated with human salmonella typhimurium infections from patients to hedgehog source n equals 20. And down the left-hand side of this figure is those N equals 20, okay? Arizona case, California case, Illinois case one through three, Indiana case one and two, Michigan case one and two, Minnesota case one through three, Nebraska, two cases from Nebraska, one from Oklahoma, New York, North Dakota, Rhode Island, Ohio, Tennessee, right? All with the same type of Salmonella typhimurium. And then those N equals 20 were traced back to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 or 15 breeders, which was in turn traced back to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, about 10 breeders. And then, um, and then eventually to a Canadian uh, breeder in one case, right? Right. And so man, oh man, is the hedgehog economy complicated? <laughs> right. Well, and and it's the, this is the, this is one of those things that I'm I'm always excited to see a figure like this. We've seen it in a couple of foodborne outbreaks as well, where we look at leafy greens and the movement of of product through the supply chain. It's really interesting to see this interconnected piece of breeders going here to different cases. But like the you know the thing that that I think is really you know in, interesting here is the isolates from all of these cases, clusters, 17 cases were closely related genetically to each other um, for allele differences by whole genome sequencing and related to two isolates from previous outbreaks. So there's some, yeah, there's still some other, there, like it doesn't explain that close. Well, there, there, right, there's yeah. a persistent and salmonella endemic in hedgehogs, right? I mean, it, it is, it, it seems like there, this is a problem yeah. that is just gonna keep bubbling up. Um, until we figure out like what the source is and we, and we eradicate that within the hedgehog population. Yeah. And, and, and there's, yes. And that there's some endemic, like closely related, like there's, there's, there's some, you know, parent breeder that, that has yeah. like, that, that they're only linking these cases, but Illinois pet store a, for instance, that was linked to Illinois case one um, may have, in the past been linked to multiple breeders on that, that are further on the right side of this figure that we just don't know. Right. About, right. Like we're right. only seeing this one, um, you know, this one cluster um, laid out this way. And it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating and, and complex um, in, in, in not, in not unrelated uh, <laughs> information. My, are you, do you know about uh, chinchillas? Uh, I've heard of them. There, there are other like. They, I bet they also have salmonella. I would think so. Um, so let that—that's a good. Let's let's Google that. Um, 
I w- yeah, I mean they're 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 rodents. Uh, salmonella. Um, yeah, there we go. Um, diagnosis of an outbreak of salmonella typhimurium and chinchillas by PFGE uh, back in 2014 um, from a commercial farm. So here's the thing: uh, why chinchilla is so important in my life right now is that there is, and this is, this is uh, as what's the term that everyone's using now, Don? The new normal, right? So the new normal that I, I'm living is that my kids are both back in school, um, in in school masked. Um, one child, uh, the, the oldest, uh, one is, is fully vaccinated. The youngest one has not been vaccinated at all because he's only 10. Um, and you know, don't be creepy people on the internet. Um, he goes to a school where they have a class pet and Don, oh. their class pet is a chinchilla. Okay. Um, the, cl- the new normal for, um, and, and you're going to see where these things, uh, uh, come together in a minute. The new normal for COVID protocols in schools is if a, if a child has any symptoms that would be on any COVID related list whatsoever, oh my, the child is coming home. Oh and, my. and so let's, let's look at um, COVID symptoms, children. Okay. Cause this, again, it's important for the story. Fever, chills, cough, Shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, fatigue, muscle or body aches, headache, new loss or taste of smell, sore throat, congestion or runny nose. Let's put a pin in that, Don. Mm-hmm. Nausea or vomiting, diarrhea. Um, a friend of the show, um, my son, uh, <laughs> has consistent congestion or running nose, <sighs> mainly because we think he might be allergic, allergic to, to chinchillas, chinchillas yeah. because he's never been exposed to chinchillas except for the last three weeks. He has now been sent home three days oh, for, no. for sneezing oh, uh, no. and having a stuffy nose, at yeah. which point he goes to the doctor and gets a negative gets a test, test oh, and goes back no. the next day. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you, Don, the ability for our you know, the process of a pediatrician to schedule allergen testing for chinchillas is um, not, I'm going to say limited, (laughs) limited, and it is not fast. So the new normal that we're living in is I'm expecting one day a week. um, You know, we're, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have a problem where, where someone's going, you know, someone's going home. Uh, So yeah. Yeah. Oof is right. So that's the, that's the new, that's, that's the thing that I'm, that I'm dealing with. Anyway, no, no salmonella from the chinchilla, but uh, certainly sneezing. Uh, And, and it's like, and you know, we, it's the right thing to do, right? Like if it's, if there's symptoms that are related to COVID, we don't want, I don't want my kids spreading COVID in, 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 in his classroom. Uh, But, but it, it provides an an additional layer of complexity um, now having, so, so we might be, and this is like the thing that I'm worried about for his, his, you know, situation so maybe if he is allergic to this chinchilla, he might be the reason why there's no longer the chinchilla pet in the classroom because he can't be going home all the time because he's allergic to it. And now all of a sudden he, that, that burden is on him, right? Like that, that's going to suck for a 10 year old if that's, yeah, if that's wow. the case. So, wow. so anyway, I don't know what to, don't know where to, where to go with it, but that's, that's where we're, where we're at. Well, I did, while you were talking, I did figure out what the wine feedback was. And this is from uh, a friend of the show, uh, Elizabeth Andress, who writes, um, 
Uh, have you read about Ocean Fathoms Wine Cellar Under the Sea? Um, sorry, I haven't listened to your podcast before replying. And what what Ocean Fathoms is, and we'll also link to the, the tweet and we'll link to this. This is wine that you can get that has specifically been stored under the sea in in purpose uh, on purpose rather and it is leads to some very creative looking uh wine bottles and we talked about this i think in our text channel uh with linda and michelle but uh yeah so um uh, uh the, these wine bottles the outside uh, become colonized with lots of interesting critters that live in the ocean i i can't see how to actually order any of this wine um but it really looks interesting oh awesome good all right well we sort we we close the loop on wine uh um, on wine feedback. Good wine job. feedback. Yes. Um, the, the last one in here, um, is, uh, or not, maybe not the last one, but the one that I wanted to talk about, uh, comes from a listener to the show, uh, Matt, who will, uh, uh, also refer to as deep thermometer, um, deep thermometer writes, I just listened to food safety talk 241. And based on your discussion about Bluetooth thermometer probes, this might be of interest to you, to you. Um, and it is from combustion.inc. They claim that it'll be thinner than the existing options like meter, and it'll contain several temperature sensors instead of just one at the tip. One of their email updates claims that it will be even safer for deep frying. The team behind it seems to have a solid track record. And so um, I, we're, we're um, like in the process of looking for additional temperature probes like this for a variety of um, uh, a, a variety of uh, applications in our, um, uh, in, in our kitchens. And so thanks to, to deep thermometer, uh, for this, I did try to like buy these. Well, it, it clearly like, it looks like they're not available yet. Um, from what I, you know, well, I, I would buy them, but I, I don't think I can yet. Okay. Yeah. Could you get the webpage to open? I, so it's funny. I can't get it to open right now, but I could get oh. it to open before. Okay. Combustion. When I looked at it the first time. So while, while you work on that, I do. I yeah. So I have promised some feedback, some risky or not feedback on stinky sous vide. And so there was an article uh, entitled The Effects of a Novel Three-Step Sous Vide Cooking and Subsequent Chilled Storage on the Microbiota of Beef Steaks article. And this article um didn't look right to me. Like I, I was, I was kind of, I was puzzling over it because it, like I said, it didn't, it didn't really look, look right to me. And so I did a little bit of research and, um, I want to, and, and I, I did enough research before to know that I wanted to give feedback, but I, I didn't like write down what I thought. And so I didn't want to do it on the fly. Um, but anyway, so, so something, um, for sure is going, something funny is going on here for sure. Um, one of the cooking temperatures that they use is an incubation temperature, right? Like they talk about um, sous vide cooking at, uh, well, they give it in C, but I'll translate to F because that's how I, I think about these things. One of the temperatures is 102 degrees Fahrenheit. You're not going to cook anything at 102. And then they have 120 and 138. And you're, you know, 120 is borderline and 138 is, is a cook, I would call it a cooking temperature. Um, the biggest puzzle to me is why they have such high counts remaining after their cooking process. And there is ample evidence in the literature, which they cite 
which contradicts their findings and they offer no explanation. And so basically what they're proposing is after cooking this, in many cases to 138 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, they have um, uh, uh, high, high levels of contamination, which is, which is not right. Also, I also already don't like them because, uh, well, so Ben, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. This is a math question. Okay. If you have in, if you test a food sample and you do a total plate count and you find seven log colony forming units of, uh, of total plate count, right? Okay. Okay. And you, and you test uh, that same sample at the uh -huh. same time and you find five log CFU are lactic acid bacteria. Okay. Okay. Would you, would you say, because five is most of seven, mm -hmm. would you say that most of the total plate count are lactic acid bacteria? I would not say that. Why would you not say that, Ben? Because five is most of seven. Five is most of seven. Um, I think it's, I, I think, Don, I think it's because of the log scale that I would not say that. Yes, exactly. Five is most of seven, but 10 to the five is not the most of 10 to the seven. Exactly. Okay? That yes. would be like saying uh, a uh, an earthquake with a five on a Richter scale is almost the same as an earthquake with a seven on the Richter scale, which is just fundamentally not true, right? Right, right. Um, so, 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 yeah. So, I'm thinking these folks did something wrong, and they don't understand math. And so, with all, with all, you know, apologies to my Canadian colleagues at the National Meat Training Center and the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Lacombe uh, Research and Development Center. I think they've done something wrong. I, I think their uh, their bags are leaking or their process is off because after uh, undergoing this process, there's no way that they should have any viable organisms in this. And, and, and again, it, yes, there, some of that could be explained by spore formers, but not enough. Right, not, right. Not, not, there's, no, there's no way that you have that, that level of spore formers in these, in these products, which they are claiming are uh, in some cases, uh, Pseudomonas, right? They're, right, they're, right? they're detecting organisms that should not be there after the process they, they deliver where the organisms are definitively not spore formers. And so I, 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 my intuition was there's something wrong with this paper. Having looked at it more carefully, I know that there's definitely something wrong with this paper. Well, yeah, and and so you know, this is a good place for us to um, to to add or to, to end our, our discussion mm -hmm. today, because what do you what do you do with this? Like like what you know? Here here are some options, right? Let we run this study. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of work, right? Like right. and and so then you know the second you know the second option is reach out and say, could you maybe clarify some of the data here? But the they don't really have a. I don't know, a duty to do that right. for, for, you know, for us, for you, you know, as, as you, as you highlight this out. So where, well, like, you know, where do we, where do we go? We kind of, well, like, I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to do nothing. Right. Yeah, and they, yeah they, exactly. They, they, right, they say, right. they say in conclusion, the three-step sous vide process did not lead to bacterial proliferation or compromise the storage life of cooked products. So in a way, if you accept that there's something not wrong about the study, um, they did prove their hypothesis that they could use this three-phase study where they, they do a preliminary, they, they cook at um, one hour at 39 degrees C. So they incubate it 
at 102 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour. They uh, heat it to um, 120 for an hour, and then they do four hours at 138. I think that nominally they're doing that because they want to tend, quote unquote tenderize it. That's a fine. That's a, I don't have a problem with that process. That's a fine process. But I could have told you that was a fine process already without this because basically all you're doing is you're incubating it for two hours and you're not going to get pathogen growth um in in two hours or if right, you get right. it you're gonna you're gonna handle it with your with your four hours at 138 which is you know you could again look at the usda fsis appendix b you've got you've got your six or seven log reduction of salmonella so it's a it's a perfect so you're gonna you're gonna overwhelm with thermal process, whatever problems you created in the first two hours. But again, I would, and again, and they did do 28 day storage, which is good. So no off, no unacceptable or different off flavors, 28 days. That's fine. But there's, there's still something wrong with the paper, right? I mean, yeah, the right. conclusions are sound. I think you could replicate it and show that the same thing, but maybe with data that are not flawed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. 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 And I, and I think that this is also not something you know, super surprising. This is what we, there are lots of papers and with little, you know, problems in them, right? Like the, yep. the more you, yeah. So, but I think that's like that, I don't know. I think that's an important thing for us to, to constantly talk about um, in, um, you know, in what we do. So mm. cool. Um, all right. Well, I think that's a show. It's a show. We, I have, to, I, I look at my, at my, at my new clock, well, not my new clock, my clock that's always been there on my Mac, but not my call recorder. So, so we'll see how this goes. I don't know. Like, I, I think I was less, um, I was less echoey at some points. We'll see how this, yeah. how this all sounds. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, if you need me to run it through Descript, happy to yeah, do it. I might, we, I might do that. Um, all right. Oh, and look, um, I, I just saw that you, you even sent me little things in chat, like keep talking. I'll be right back. That was like an hour ago. I didn't even see that until right now. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, so I, we had, uh, with somebody coming to do a, a lawn treatment and, uh, I, I'm always worried that, um, my wife has let the dogs out and that she, uh, is not aware. Cause I have, I have very good visibility into the street in front of my house, um, from my personal office. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it's a, it's a bit of a slog to get to corral the dogs and I would hate to have the, the guy, the yard guy open the fence and be faced with the dogs. Cause number one, that would not be good. And also the dogs would run away and that would you know be a pain, um, to, to go catch them. But I think, uh, she was out walking Bianca and Gibbs was in the house. So we're good. Awesome. Well, um, I, I wanted to ask who let the dogs out. Um, just so I can make that the show, the show title, but I feel like I just forced it too much because yeah, it wasn't so. organic. So I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll pick something else. Uh, okay. uh, Hey, this was, this was awesome. Um, I'm glad that we, uh, we tried something new uh, with, with zoom, or at least I'm glad like it, it all worked in the yeah. like actual talking part of things. We'll see what the recording sounds like, but yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, hey, uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
Yeah. Yeah. So I, the reason why I couldn't get those web pages to load, my internet does this weird thing where it, it stopped working. I think because there's a, a collision, uh, uh, IP address collision. Yes. So the way that I fix it is by turning my internet on and off, I, but I don't want to do that while I'm talking to you. I do that. You know, I do that sometimes too with, um, I find it on my iPad and my phone. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked a little bit about this. Like, I think it's Eero moving it from spot to spot. It yeah. doesn't like that sometimes. Yeah. And yeah, but anyway, that that's my, that's just my guess. Yeah, it, it is. It is an era thing, but it but it's but it is also because my laptop is not moving. Right. Uh, I think it's also that um, the ear. I, what I need to do is I need to turn my I need to turn my make my router. So oh, I forget there's a name for this, but basically um, the my my internet gets confused because sometimes they get IP addresses from the Verizon router and sometimes they get it from the Eero. And I need to turn off that capability in the Verizon router, but it involves switching some switches, flipping, flipping some, like, like what you have in your office. <laughs> right, right, right. Let's all the switches. Um, flip, flipping some things and calling Verizon. And I'm like, well, it's fine. It mostly works. I just have to turn internet on and off and it, it fixes it. I, I can live with that for now. So. Well, there you go. Um, so, okay, cool. Let's look at our schedule. Oh, we got to we got to set another episode, right? Yeah, we got to set the other episode. I'm all, I just, I, we don't we don't have Skype and we don't have call record. I, I, I don't know what to do. We're all, we're all out of sorts. Um, okay, so two weeks from today is the eighth of September. Yes. I have a. I really could do. I could do. I, I've got this gap from ten thirty until three that would be i have some i got some stuff that's in there but i it's all like portable um would any time in that window work for you yeah the only time i'm not available that day right now is one to two okay so if we did uh 10 30 yeah uh, to uh 12 30 that would work yep perfect 10 30 all right that's perfect Um, good, good, good stuff. All right, cool. Um, I think that's, I think that's it. I think I stopped the recording and then it downloads to my computer. Yeah. It depends on you, you, you've either set it up to record in the, the, the Clued or on your computer. And once you stop recording, it will, it will do its thing. Yeah, it's going to, so, all right. So here we go. I'm going to try that. Okay. okay. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.